Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 12. We have now produced our first dozen. Well, all right, all right. 12 down, many to go. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. It's another wild week in America, which is our new normal now. The 2020 election is in high gear. Trump is doing big rallies again. The Democrats are eating their own again. And it's kind of an upside-down world. A Canadian team is the best team in the world at basketball. An American team is the best team in the world at hockey. And maybe the best team in the world in women's soccer is American too. But it's wild out there. And every week, we're going to explore our great American experiment and ask hard questions of our political leaders and therefore our government. Mark Twain famously said, Patriotism is supporting your country all the time, and your government when it deserves it. And right now, our government doesn't deserve it. And that's what's got me angry this week, and I think should have all Americans angry too. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Under President Trump, we're right to have lost faith and trust in our government. We can't trust our government under him any more than we can trust Miramax under Harvey Weinstein. If a leader can't be trusted, then neither can the things he or she leads. Kids in cages? There was a New York Times story this week of a four-month-old baby snatched from his family. Wars without authorization and without end. Tax dollars squandered to no end. Elections we can't trust. A Congress that can't get simple and urgent things done, like passing budgets or ensuring 9-11 first responder heroes don't get screwed. This show is a distress signal for America, and to America, from inside America. I have warned you about things to come that would later be bigger issues. A potential war with Iran, 9-11 first responders care, public bathrooms, the electric scooter invasion, which is now, by the way, hitting Chicago and New York City, Howard Schultz's flawed candidacy, the proliferation of the pro-measles people, which now includes, apparently, Jessica Biel, which disappoints me on so many levels, and the perils of losing General Mattis as our Secretary of Defense. For the last 168 days, we've had an acting Secretary of Defense, someone who was running our wars, who hadn't been approved by the Senate, who also wouldn't do press conferences and hadn't been formally nominated. He never served in uniform and was actually a former Boeing executive working for the military-industrial complex before he came to the Pentagon, which should have disqualified him from the outset. We just sent 1,000 troops to the Gulf on Monday to listen in on Iran. And yesterday, Acting Secretary of Defense Shanahan resigned. He said he was withdrawing to focus on his family. Shortly after the Washington Post had released a report detailing a violent incident in 2011 when his son attacked his own mother and Shanahan's wife with a baseball bat. Court records revealed a really scary domestic abuse situation from inside his family from eight years ago. It appears his son smashed his wife's head with a baseball bat. It's a terrible situation for any family. And on a very basic level, my heart goes out to them. Really. But my heart is really much more concerned for America. Holy shit. Again, we have no Secretary of Defense. While our nation is at war, while we're contemplating another war, we have no real Secretary of Defense. 
Army Secretary Mark Esper was named the new acting Secretary of Defense by Trump on Tuesday after Shanahan withdrew his nomination. Esper is 56 years old. He's acted as the 23rd Secretary of the Army since November of 2017. Before becoming Army Secretary, he had an executive position at Raytheon, a defense contractor. He was recently the Vice President for Government Relations. Now, he does have a history of military service, but also working for a defense contractor, which I think should be an automatic disqualifier. Your loyalty should never be in question. And anyone who's worked for the military-industrial complex, companies that profit from war, should never be in contention to run the Pentagon. He graduated from the United States Military Academy in 1986, the same year as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He got his commission in infantry and completed Ranger and Pathfinder training. He served on active duty for over a decade. In the early 90s, he served with the 101st Airborne in the Gulf War, and he later commanded a rifle company in Europe. But again, he's not a real Secretary of Defense. He's the acting Secretary of Defense. This is bad on so many levels. I've been covering it for months on Angry Americans and also when I've hosted on Sirius XM. But this is an even worse situation than expected. America is actively engaged in combat around the world. Tensions with Iran are high. We're sending 1,000 more troops to the Middle East. And we're on our second Secretary of Defense in six months. The depth of how bad this administration has been at vetting cabinet secretaries is stunning. And I think among Trump's biggest leadership failures so far. Everyone remember Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who was nominated for Secretary of the VA? Watch this space, people. Stakes is high. Our government is failing us, and I don't think can be trusted, shouldn't be trusted. Now, there are many good people working in government, but the leadership at the top, the commander-in-chief most of all, has created a failure of trust. This is not just some tinfoil hat shit, not some Second Amendment don't-take-my-gun shit. This is a government failing its people. Prioritizing self-congratulatory Fourth of July parties instead of taking care of firefighters and cops who served on 9-11. When Jon Stewart gave his impassioned speech last week, urging lawmakers to reauthorize funding for the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, one of the first responders who accompanied him was Luis Alvarez, a bomb squad detective for the New York Police Department. Alvarez, 53, told lawmakers he had gone through 68 rounds of chemotherapy after he was diagnosed with 9-11 linked cancer with his 69th round scheduled for just 24 hours later. He said, I've been to many places in this world, and I've done many things, but I can tell you I did not want to be anywhere else but ground zero when I was there. That's what he told Fox News. And he said, now the 9-11 illnesses have taken many of us, and we're all worried about our children, our spouses, our families, and what happens if we're not here. He added, I should not be here with you, but you made me come. I will not stand by as my friends with cancer from 9-11, like me, are valued less than anyone else. This is a government failing, Luis. A president failing, Luis. A government preparing for a 4th of July parade that nobody wants and needs, except for maybe one guy. Preparing for a 4th of July parade instead of for infrastructure, instead of for education, Americans are angry, and for good reason. They're paying attention, more and more by the day. And they're right not to trust this government. And they're not alone. Worldwide, people are rising up to challenge, improve, 
and even overthrow their governments, with undoubtedly more on the way. The message to governments worldwide is now clear. Listen to the people, or be kicked out by them. This week, two million people took to the streets of Hong Kong, protesting their government. That's one out of every seven people in Hong Kong. That would be the equivalent of 50 million people in America taking to the streets. That's Hong Kong. Egypt, Sudan, maybe soon Iran, maybe Saudi Arabia. Government is misaligned with people worldwide. And here at home, the examples are plentiful. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. You are wrong. You should be ashamed. And the tagline from 9-11, never forget, well, you may not remember it, but we do. And we will. Forever. Especially when you're up for re-election next fall. You are a glaring example of how our government is failing its people. How our government is failing real, working people. And it's no more starkly clear than on drug policy. And marijuana policy specifically. A few weeks ago, I broke it down with Wes Moore. Activist, author, and CEO of the poverty-fighting organization Robinhood. And I shared my own experiences, including the story of when I was arrested myself for marijuana possession. Go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard it already. But the war on drugs is lost and was misguided to begin with. If Iraq was our greatest foreign policy mistake of our lifetime, the unnecessary war on drugs might be the domestic one. Millions in jail, billions lost, And I wanted to get into it with a guy I've known for a long time. He is truly the godfather of the modern drug reform movement, Ethan Nadelman. Ethan Nadelman is the godfather of drugs. For real. Forget Pablo Escobar. Forget Frank Lucas. Ethan has had more impact on drugs than anyone in America. He was described by Rolling Stone as the driving force for legalization of marijuana in America. He's been called the real drug czar. Ethan was born in New York City. He was raised there by a Jewish family and his father was a rabbi. He got a bachelor's, a JD, and a PhD from Harvard and a master's degree in international relations from the London School of Economics. He taught politics and public affairs at Princeton University. The notorious B.I.G. wrote in the Ten Crack Commandments, I've been in this game for years. It made me an animal. It's rules to the shit. I wrote me a manual. Well, B.I.G. actually didn't write the manual for America on drugs. Ethan Nadelman did. And that manual is being revised daily. By our president, by industry, by candidates, and by angry Americans like you. Drug policy impacts every area of American life. Our economy. Criminal justice education, national health, national defense, from taxes to prisons to funeral homes, from birth and kids with autism to teenagers facing opioids, to vets with combat injuries, to the elderly looking for relief from pain or to explore end-of-life options. From the cradle to the grave, drug policy will touch us all. It will touch the people you love, and it'll touch you. If we get it wrong, we'll lose a generation to opioids. If we get it right, 
we can launch our economy to incredible new heights and build a new industry of global leaders in the same way we did with the creation, growth, and dominance of Silicon Valley. This week, the push to legalize pot failed in New York. State legislators were considering a backup plan to decriminalize the drug after a legalization effort collapsed in the midst of disagreement about how to regulate the industry. This battle was lost in New York, but cannabis advocates are winning the war. And like Gilead, the future of the status quo is very much in doubt. The recreational use of cannabis is now legal in 10 states. Alaska, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington, the District of Columbia, the Northern Mariana Islands, and Guam. America is going green fast. The green revolution is here. It's no longer fringe. It's mainstream now. And it's a key to America's past, America's present, and America's future. Cannabis in particular is an area where America is truly leading and can lead even more so if we get it right. Drugs are very powerful. There's no denying that. If we get them wrong, they can destroy us. If we get them right, they can fuel our future and create a more caring, more compassionate, stronger, more healthy America. So crank up the AC. Summer is here. And even if it's cold or rainy where you are, it's going to be a hot one politically. So put on your shorts, get out your fishing pole, roll down the windows, set the cruise control, and lock in your brain. Your weekly dose of the four eyes is coming in hot. Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. Spark your mind, get ready to drop hard into one of the most dynamic, inspiring, vexing, and important issues of our time. This is your brain on drugs. This is Angry Americans on Drugs. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 12. Summer's here. Fourth of July is coming. And you want to look good, you want to be comfortable, and you want to represent for a cause that matters. Check out OscarMike.org. Oscar Mike is the exclusive merchandise provider for Angry Americans and Righteous Media. Oscar Mike is a veteran-owned company out of Chicago that makes their stuff 100% in the USA. It's made in the USA. That's a difficult thing to do, but they do it because they're a patriotic company that kicks ass and delivers maybe the most comfortable t-shirts you've ever tried. We've got all kinds of new designs that are up in the store now for Angry Americans and for Orange County choppers and just cool stuff that you can rock all summer long. If you're going to be at the beach or a barbecue or you got a really cool casual job where you can wear t-shirts to work, well, rock some Oscar Mike and you'll be glad you did. They've been huge supporters of Angry Americans and Righteous Media. We're grateful to have their support and you'll be grateful if you pick up some of their t-shirts. Free shipping if your order is over $60. And again, it's 100% made in the USA. Oscar Mike is military terminology for on the move, meaning veterans are on the move. They're moving forward they're doing good stuff, and that's what Oscar Mike is all about. So represent for Angry Americans, represent for America, and check out Oscar Mike, oscarmike.org. Okay, Angry Americans, we have a very special guest that I am excited 
to have joining us. It's a, it's a conversation I've been looking forward to having for really many years. Um, the great Ethan Nadelman is here. Friend, mentor, inspiration, uh, and the guy that Rolling Stone called the driving force for marijuana legalization. One of many things you've been called. Um, but first off, man, thank you for being here at the Classic Car Club Manhattan and joining us on Angry Americans. Well, hey, Paul, it's a pleasure to be on. And I've been admiring the work that you did with IAVA, with Vets and Stuff, just for a long time and getting to know you. And now, you know, in my kind of semi-retirement life, it's good to be able to do things like this. Absolutely. So, uh, again, we're at the Classic Car Club Manhattan. So if you hear some noise, there might be cars starting up. Uh, we are having a cocktail, as is the custom on this show. And I asked you what cocktail you wanted before you were on your way over here. And can you tell folks what you chose and why? Well, you know, you put me on the spot, Paul, and I went through a Negroni phase about 10 years ago and then kind of fell out of it. But then I was just reading that Negroni's making a comeback. So I thought, what the hell? Absolutely. Well, cheers. Salute. Salute. Cheers. It's a good summer drink. We had Wes Moore on recently, and he chose an Aperol Spritz. So I think this is like a stronger cousin of an Aperol spritz. Given that it is the afternoon, I probably should have gone with a spritz, but no, what the hell? You're retired. What the, exactly. But you're not really retired. So I, well. part of why I'm excited to talk to you is there is maybe never been more going on in America and in the world on drug policy. Mm-hmm. And you are the godfather of drug policy. You are the godfather of advocacy and even... You know, drug might not even be the right way to frame it. So as we talk, um, you know, part of what I'm going to talk about earlier in the episode is kind of where government is right now. Mm -hmm. And I think around the world, people are frustrated with government. And sometimes that extends to how we're handling Iran. Sometimes it extends to how we're handling uh, people coming across the border, children. Mm -hmm. And maybe most, you know, most recently and most astutely for many people, it's drug policy or the failures of drug policy. So you've been in this game for decades. Can you kind of set the stage and tell us you know, maybe go back to where did this start yeah, for sure. you? I mean, help and Paul. when did it start? <laughs> I mean, part of it, you know, stemmed from growing up, born in New York City, grew up in Westchester, in a Jewish religious family. My dad was a rabbi. My mom came from an Orthodox family and uh, never tried pot in high school, barely. And I go off to college and I start smoking weed and I liked it. And I'm wondering, like, why are people getting busted for this? And I like booze, too, which was obviously more of a problem. But, you know, people were getting busted for this. So it just kind of registered for me for a while. And this was in the mid-70s. And then in the 80s, I was in graduate school. I was in a law degree as well, trying to think what I was interested in, not taking my future in academia very seriously. And a friend of mine said to me, Ethan, you've always been interested in the deviant side of life. Why don't you do something about drugs or deviance? And so I said, what the hell? So I decided to write a dissertation on the internationalization of drug control and all that stuff. And I landed up talking my way into the State Department's Narcotics Bureau. I got a security clearance. I wrote a classified report on drug-related money laundering. I went around all around Latin America, Europe, interviewing DEA and foreign drug enforcement agents and CIA and FBI and customs in 19 different countries. I went on a little operations with them. I mean, I got to know, I basically went undercover on the undercover guys because my views were always the same, which was that the drug war was essentially idiotic, cruel, and stupid, right? And I came out of that, went to teach at Princeton in the late 80s, and the drug war, which had been a kind of backwater issue in the early 80s, 
by the time I get to Princeton 87, it's like the number one issue in American media, American public opinion polls. You got a public opinion poll in the late 80s where Americans saying drugs are the number one you know, threat to America today. You couldn't turn on TV, pick up a major news magazine without seeing this stuff. And in the very minute of that, you know, right in the midst of that, I'm a first year young assistant professor at Princeton. I write an article in Foreign Policy magazine, and I say the whole drug war is crazy. This is ridiculous, doing more harm than good. And next thing I know, I got my first 15 minutes of fame, and I'm out there and, you know, and you, from there. And you created the Drug Policy Alliance. Well, I did this at Princeton for a whole right. bunch of years. There was a new mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke, very brave guy, former chief prosecutor. He was out there. He had some of the conservatives, William Buckley and Milton Friedman, who were on my side on this stuff, ACLU. But we were sort of played as kind of the laugh line when everybody was focusing on the drug war. But there was a movement emerging and people coming together, and I was getting involved with this sort of nascent movement. And then in the summer of 92... After I've been in Princeton a few years, I get a phone call out of the blue from a guy named George Soros inviting me to lunch. He wasn't quite famous then. And I went in and he said, I'm interested in this drug policy reform thing, ending the drug war. I said, why? He said, well, my focus had been bringing down communism and socialism in Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union. We succeeded faster than anybody expected. I've always thought America was the model of the open society, but I asked myself, what's not consistent with open society values in America? And the drug war was the first thing that hit him between the eyes. So we had a nice conversation. One thing led to another. Then he became famous when he broke the British bank and all this. And in 94, I left the university and started up my organization and... From 1994 until I stepped down two years ago, just built it up into what basically became the leading, biggest drug policy reform organization in the world. And part of why I'm excited to talk to you is because I don't know how many folks know that story. Yeah. You're, you're, like, you're like a blues legend, right? Like that was the inspiration for rock and roll and inspiration for hip hop, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're, you're a guy that was grinding on this issue when it wasn't popular, when it wasn't... Uh, <laughs> mainstream when it wasn't even understood and you were a translator like from from almost from like a, a distant planet trying to interpret what i think is still one of the most important policy issues of our time something that incarcerates millions you know has billion dollar impact on our economy you'll yeah. break down all these statistics i'm sure but but how does it feel for you being You've been called uh, the unofficial drug czar, right? Yeah, yeah. Some have called you that, right? There were these drug czars for many years who were supposed to, you know, know drugs. Technically, there still is a drug czar, is, but nobody's right? even heard of them. And, and, um, you know, Paul, but but how you, does it feel to go, to kind of feel the world come back to you? And that now you've got presidential candidates yeah. who, four years ago, I don't know if any presidential candidates came out in favor of recreational marijuana legalization? Yeah, Sanders sort of but, inched his way up there, and I talked to him about it as he was doing the inching and helped shape that. Please. But, I mean, I'll tell you, it's mostly overwhelmingly positive, you know? I mean, I'll tell you, when I was starting, a few friends of mine arranged for me to go see this very wise man named Ramdas, right? And I go to see Ramdas, and, and ask, I said, you know, I got this commitment from George Soros, starting up a new organization, you got any advice? Right. And he said two things to me. He goes, the first thing he said to me is, you need to learn to love William Bennett. Now, most of your listeners won't even remember who William Bennett was, but William Bennett in the late 80s was the education secretary and the, first, the nation's first drug czar. He was the personification of really venal values. I mean, I don't know how, how far to take this, you know? And, but I knew what Ron Dust meant was that the only way we're ever going to succeed in moving the center of American public opinion on how to deal with drugs was by to appealing and speaking to people's greatest fears and about their kids, about society, about everything. 
But the second thing he said to me, he goes, you got to learn to let go of your attachment to the things you're fighting for. And I took that to mean hmm. that win or lose, devoting my life to this struggle is the right thing to do. Now, looking back, I'm 62. I've been doing this for over 30 years. I'm glad that we had a lot more victory. That, you know, the marijuana thing's the most obvious, but even in turning around the whole mass incarceration thing and I'm trying to deal with drug addiction in new ways, I mean, we really have made some strides. But I also realized, I started talking about when I got into this, you know, in the, in the late 80s, right? And yeah. that's over 30 years ago. And yeah. that would be like when I was... 30 in the late 1980s, me talking about something in the 1950s, you know? Right. I feel like in a way when people talk about like the gay rights movement, yeah. and in a way the gay yeah. rights movement was kind of like the elder sibling of the marijuana legalization movement, right. we were a real role model for us, but I feel like one of those people who was like pre-Stonewall in some yeah. sense, except yeah. kept going from yeah. there. but you were. I mean, and, and I think that those are really good parallels because the rapid trans transition of the popular understanding of the issues mm -hmm. and then really recognizing that the people were ahead of the policy, right? The country was moving so fast, politics couldn't even keep up with that's it. That's right. Well, that's right? why our real breakthroughs happened with ballot initiatives. You Can know? you talk about that? Because yeah. I think this is part of why you and I have always had a great kinship is, you know, IAVA was really a leader for veterans for, for a long period of time and Drug Policy Alliance was a leader on many issues and there's crossover, but part of what we bond over is strategy. That's right. And Tactics and leadership and, and the ballot initiatives, similarly, I think with, with gay rights, was a critical tool in moving the way things changed in this country. You didn't just, you know, wake up and all of a sudden it was it was changed. No, there exactly. was a concerted strategy that you well, led. You know, so can you talk about yeah, that? I mean, I mean, I really think about my evolution. I think about the first six years or whatever in the 80s is really understanding about the drug war and the history of the drug war and where it came from. Understanding that the reason that some drugs are criminalized and others not has very little to do with the relative risks or dangers of these substances and almost everything to do with who uses and who is perceived to use these substances. You know, no, nobody wanted to criminalize opiates in mid-19th century America so long as it was mostly elderly white women using it. But mm. it was Chinese immigrants coming in and working hard and smoking their opium. That's when you got the first opium prohibition mm. laws. First cocaine prohibition laws directed at blacks in the South. First marijuana prohibition laws directed at Mexican migrants, Mexican immigrants in the, the teens and the 20s. So the first phase was understanding how the drug war was fought and understanding what was wrong with it. The second phase was still an intellectual phase of trying to under, trying to think through what would be the ideal way to regulate drugs. And so I put together a working group at Princeton of distinguished academics and really trying to think through the ideal model. But there was no market in public opinion for an ideal way to deal with drugs back 25 years ago. So the third phase was the beginnings of the political thing. And that's when I had started up with Soros and, and an opportunity emerged. There had been a, uh, some local activists in California who were trying to do a medical medical marijuana initiative. And they barely had a pot to piss in and they didn't have the sophistication to, you know, get anything going. And I happened to be in a very fortunate place, but I was still an academic. And then it was a guy, the same guy who introduced you and me, yeah. a guy named Chuck Blitz, yeah. living in Santa Barbara, who was a remarkable connector of people. Right. And he calls me up one day in 95, he goes, Ethan, you bring all the leading activists and f financial donors, and I'll bring the political pros and all that, and the public opinion specialists and all that. So we did a meeting in 95, began to think through what it would look like to get really political. And then in late 95, early 96, these activists were saying, we can't make it to the ballot. Ethan, help us out. I was in a position to know that not just George Soros, but a guy named Peter Lewis, who was head of progressive insurance, a guy named George Zimmer, who was head of the men's warehouse, a guy named John Sperling, who created University of Phoenix, that all of these guys hated the drug war. 
for somewhat different reasons. Right. And put, put those guys into a partnership, like a two, two and a half million dollar partnership, to fund this medical marijuana initiative in California. And by the way, another initiative in Arizona to reduce incarceration, not about marijuana. And basically put this together, organize the campaign, and come November 96, we win, we legalize medical marijuana in California. Our initiative in California gets a higher percentage of the vote than Bill Clinton did in his re-election, which was a lot. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that was a key domino. Maybe one of the toughest well, in, in, in creating the momentum behind the political change. Yes. And, and I mean, what it did was it was it was it was where the nascent drug policy reform movement showed that we could play ball in the major leagues of American politics. And it shook things up. You know, a month later, the cover of Newsweek, like medical marijuana, are all drugs going to be legalized next? I mean, it was still being sensationalized and not being seen in the much more yeah. incremental way we were doing it. But it was a breakthrough. It, it was, a, it was a victory. It was, it was a, a major, a, a major. And then you couldn't be ignored in the same. I, I want to take a step maybe backward and, yeah. and forward in recognizing that part of, I think, your brilliance in understanding this is, is that it would be a slow evolution, but this was not a partisan issue. Right. And, and my audience, our audience is made up of very, a number of, of, of unaffiliated independents. Um, you know, we've got Republicans, Democrats, libertarians. There was this, you know, strange, it seemed like consistent alliance between uh, maybe the more liberal wing of, of the Democratic Party and libertarians. Well, was well that, I mean, or, it was complicated. Can you because, talk us through what that complexion I mean, looked like? As and I where said, it is now. so my best allies were people yeah. like William Buckley and Milton Friedman, the yeah. two most famous conservatives of the last. Latter, tw latter part of the 20th century in America. It was people like the Hoover Institution in California, right-wingers. For folks that, that maybe aren't uh, familiar with, what was their argument? From a conservative standpoint, what? How did they make that argument? Well, Friedman was coming at very much from a libertarian analysis, right? That basically the absurdity of trying to criminalize a global commodities market—that when you criminalize this and there's a major demand, it's going to put in the hands of gangsters and organized crime and violence. You're going to incarcerate large numbers of people. But Friedman was also effective in making a very powerful moral argument about individual freedom and also about the racist elements of this stuff. I'll never forget there yeah. was a very liberal Harvard law professor. Lonnie Guineer, somebody who uh, Clinton had tried to appoint and been pushed out by the right-wingers. And I remember Lonnie Guineer, I'm presenting the whole issue to Soros' board meeting, and she says, Ethan, you should take Milton Friedman's op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and send it to like all the black ministers in America. It was a crossover piece. Hmm. And Buckley, it was kind of also, you know, he was an intellectual, and it right. was a bit of the libertarian side. 89, George Schultz, you know, the former Republican secretary of everything, right? I mean, you know, right. I mean, <laughs> right. state, you know, OMB, Treasury, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Right. He comes out on this thing. Frank Carlucci, the former deputy CIA head of defense or vice versa, he's our ally on this thing, right? I mean, Republican governor of New Mexico, Gary Johnson in 99, 2000, right, right. who becomes a libertarian candidate for president years later, he comes out on this thing. So you had, you had a libertarian element. You had... Republicans who just hated government being wasteful. You had people who did, Republicans didn't like people locking up people if they weren't committing violent acts or hurting other people. You had all that. And the liberal side, though, we had some allies, but you had a lot of people. This was the issue where liberals could sound like conservatives. Right. I mean, I, I had liberal professors, my colleagues at Princeton, and they were totally liberal, but drugs, oh, what about my kids? Or you'd be talking African-American leaders, and they would be sounding like right-wingers. They'd be more likely to line up with William Buckley. Drugs are destroying our community. Don't you talk to me about decriminalization, medical marijuana, all this sort of stuff. So it took a while was for that, the liberals uh, to come around on that? now. Was that, pro, was that propaganda? 
Like where, because I grew up at a time where, you know, Nancy Reagan, the drug wars, people, you know, marijuana was a gateway drug. And if you smoke marijuana, you were going to end up on crack and then you were going to die. Right. That was kind of the fear. I grew up at a time in the eighties where you were oh, yeah. kind of scared of three things. Yeah, you're the always, program, well, right? you were always scared of the Russians, right. right. You were scared of drugs and you were scared of AIDS, right? Like those are the three things that you were kind of always terrified yeah. about. Yeah. And now times have changed except for maybe one of those things. <laughs> well, but, but <laughs> I'll tell you, but can yeah, you talk I'll about the, how do you view that message? Why were those people uh, so passionately really against their own interests well, in look, many part, ways? Part of it was think about the drug war as like McCarthyism on steroids, okay. right? In the sense that as with McCarthyism, there was a real issue of a Soviet threat. And there was a real issue of communist spies in the State Department sort of stuff. But there were, the Soviets were not lapping at our borders, and you didn't have a spy under every bed, right? right? And similarly, we did have a real problem with crack cocaine and the devastating effect in inner-city communities. We did have a problem with drugs coming from abroad. We did have all these sorts of problems. But the truth is, the magnitude of the drug abuse problem was a fraction of what people perceived it as, right? And I mean, so this whole, and our notion of being flooded with drugs was just absurd, right? So you had, and then you had people got crazed in the same way they did in the early 50s with Joe McCarthy. They got crazed. Oh, my kids. You know, marijuana, you know, with Nancy Reagan's, you know, one of the lines they use, the most dangerous drug use in America is a recreational adolescent marijuana consumer. Why? Because if you're using marijuana responsibly, you're sending the wrong message to everybody else. I mean, that was the thinking. That back was the then. line of argument. And among yeah. black leadership, Charlie Rangel, very power powerful Harlem congressman, chairing the Select Committee on Narcotics in Congress. Right, right. I mean, Charlie Rangel, he was the one like cheerleading the drug war. He was like in bed with the right wing reactionary William Bennett. The only thing they were different about was Bennett was saying, let's chop off their heads, and Rangel was against the death penalty and say, do a little more <laughs> drug treatment. Jesse Jackson, you know, the same thing. These guys in the 80s were just cheerleaders for the war on drugs, and it took a younger generation of black and brown leaders coming up to basically teach the older ones that they had lost sight, they had lost all perspective on this stuff. That basically the whole notion that a drug war was going to help poor black people in the inner cities was just bull. It was just bull. Right. And, you know, and, that, and that essentially what the drug war was essentially was a massive housing program of spending hundreds of billions of dollars building upstate prisons, hiring poor, white, not very well-educated people as prison guards, and shipping hundreds of thousands or millions of young black and brown men up to those upstate prisons, because every time you arrested one young black man, it's going to be replaced by another one, since there was always a market for these drugs in the first place. Right. So it was just ridiculous, crazy thinking. And it took, I mean, it was, it was part of my role and the organization's role was just to keep hammering away at both the liberals and the conservatives and the moderates saying, don't you understand the drug war? It violates everything that you as a liberal and moderate conservative stand for. That's what we were doing. I, I, I drew a, a parallel with Wes Moore in a recent episode where we both talked about incarceration. I talked about when I was arrested for marijuana possession and how that impacted my view of this issue in a really, really personal ways. But I also drew a parallel between the war on terrorism and the war on drugs. Right. In that they're both kind of forever wars. They don't have a clear objective. They don't have real congressional oversight. Many, much of it is based in fear. It doesn't seem to be working. Right. And, and I think in, in, in similar ways, people have kind of woken up to this idea of the artificial construct of the war on drugs. Yeah. Right. And how damaging that really was a waste of resources, a waste of lives, a waste of energy, a waste of, of things we could have been focused on instead of that. Right. Well, if you use the Iraq war as a parallel. Yeah. Right. What could we have gotten here done here with our 
infrastructure if there had been no Iraq war? How many kids could we have educated if we didn't put them in jail for marijuana possession? So all that is to say, well, Ethan, Paul, Ethan, Ethan, it was you, less like a war yeah. and more like a crusade. Because, yeah? you know, when, the, when okay. the Christians went on the Crusades, it wasn't like, let's have a reasonable strategy here. Let's do any cost-benefit analysis. Right. You know, it wasn't a strategic plan, right? It was basically like, let's march off to, you know, kill the Muslims and take Jerusalem or whatever. And sometimes the Muslims doing the same thing. And there was no, there was no analysis, right? right. It, it, it was literally a crusade. And when, we, and when the slogan came up like, to create a drug-free society— which is in a way a totalitarian sort of objective. It meant that we'll pay any price and bear any burden in order to create a drug-free society. And so that any amount of money is worth spending, it means that you would appeal legislators would introduce bills that would say, well, we're going to increase the penalty for selling cocaine from two years to five, 10, 20, 30, 50, mandatory life without any sense of what's that going to cost and how much money is that going to take away from something else? Or is it really going to have an impact on the market? Or in fact, is it actually going to have a backward impact on the market? and encourage even more violence in the markets or even more young people coming to the market. So there was just, there was a mindlessness to the whole thing, right. but people didn't want to stop up. They were afraid that if somehow you said, wait a second, let's just have a reasonable analysis. How about a cost-benefit analysis? Let's kind of think what makes sense. Maybe we should look at what the Europeans are doing because they seem to be dealing with their drug problem a lot more successfully than ours. If you said any of those things, Paul, you were accused of being pro-drug or soft on right. drugs. So... Again, similarly, like who wants to be, who, no one wanted to be soft on drugs. No one wants to be soft on terrorism, right? You don't want to be that politician. So it's almost like the ultimate pander issue, mm. right? That, that kind of rallied folks. It was a go-to for many politicians for really a generation. But taking a pause, Ethan, did you think we'd get here this fast? Like from a personal level, you're a guy who, you know, if, if, if this was a crusade, you're almost like a samurai or like a monk that's been, or an oracle that, that saw the, what the future could be. And I have great respect for you as kind of a, a Jedi of the advocacy. Yeah. I've talked about my super friends network. We had Zainab on a couple yeah. of weeks ago. We've had Agent Poo on. And I view you as part of this very elite group of, of samurai Jedis, yeah. right? But did you really... In your wildest dreams, did you think we'd be where we are now well, you know, in 2019? It depends when. So if one had asked me, and you've got to remember, if you think about my work, it falls into three big areas and a few small ones. One was ending marijuana prohibition, first for medical purposes, then more broadly. The second third was ending the drug war elements of mass incarceration. And the third was treating drug use and addiction as a health issue, not a criminal issue. So if you had asked me, like, when will marijuana get legalized? If you'd asked me that in the late 90s, after we'd won seven ballot initiatives on medical and public opinion was going up, I would have said to you, maybe 2012, which in fact was when we first legalized wow. in Colorado, Washington. If you'd asked me five years later in 2003, I would have said much later. Hmm. Because I think 9-11 created a sense of fearfulness and wariness. And then when kind of the Republicans took over everything in the government and they put a lot of, I, I had a brief moment of hope when Bush first came in because there are a whole bunch of Republicans who had said moderately good things. And I thought it might tilt that way. I mean, even Rumsfeld had been kind of open-minded and Governor Thompson from Wisconsin. And there was a whole lot to indicate George Bush himself, you know. And then, of course, they just flipped the other way on this thing. But I have to say, so in 2004, I did not think we would have gotten this far by, by two. I thought it would take us, I mean, I would have thought it would happen five years later, five, 10 years later, not this fast. On mass incarceration, 
I mean, that has been like an ocean liner. Yeah. Just getting bigger and bigger. You know, you're seeing the number of people locked up go from half a million people locked up in 1980 to 2.3 million people as of a couple of years ago. America becoming the number one in the world in our incarceration rates, the highest incarceration rate of any democratic society in history. And it just felt like standing in the way of a juggernaut. Mm. And all we could do is find ways to trip it up and try to derail it here and there with, you know, reforming the Rockefeller drug laws in New York or a ballot initiative in California. Now, I mean, I got to tell you, last two days, I was at a conference at Columbia Law School on sentencing reform organized by an organization named Aleph. Aleph is an organization put together by the Hasidic Jews, the Lubavitch Jews to help Jews and others who are incarcerated, right? And they're having a two-day high-level conference on senators' reform, the Lubavitch Hasidic wow. Jews, right? And the audience is black and brown and Hasidic Jews and all this sort of stuff. And there are organizations, like there's an organization dedicated just to getting rid of, of these punitive excessive fines that hit poor people who get a, get a little arrest, right? right? Organizations committed to bail reform. I mean, issues that one person would be dealing with part-time in the advocacy world 10 years ago are now whole organizations. So there's a real sense of change that's happening. Now, the stickiness of the drug war, the fact that we barely brought down the national prison population from 2.3 million to 2.2, you know, it just shows you, it's like trying, even when you point an ocean liner in a new direction, it still takes a lot of time before it really turns around. Yeah. But I think part of what I want to focus in on is is there is this blossoming of a million seeds now, yeah. right? Let's we could we could we could play with drug analogies all day, right? But but millions of seeds were planted, but you're kind of the Johnny Appleseed of this political movement, man. Yeah. Like, and, and I, part of why I wanted you to be on this show is because I don't think you get enough credit. You, the work you do is not about credit, <laughs> but but there is, a, 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 I think, a lack of of history and a lack of understanding of history right now, given how much is going on in the world. And part of what I want to do with this show is, is reintroduce kind of some of the real trailblazers, people that I say are iconic, important, inspiring. And I I just want to take a moment because I think we'll, we'll get a lot of great feedback from this episode for especially younger folks who don't know you. Mm-hmm. Right. And they need to know you and they need to be reintroduced to you because you were prophetic. Like you saw a lot of this, but you also cultivated it. Yeah. And it's no, now blossomed into this amazing thing that I think is better for America, uh, better Paul, for our Paul, health, Paul, better really, for our national defense, better for our world. Yeah. So so on behalf of well, the country, yeah. I want to thank you. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me on. I appreciate you saying that. You know, you start off by asking me how I feel about all these changes. And so it's overwhelmingly nice to be successful and to feel like, you know, the the, the granddaddy of this thing and 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 that. And 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 it, but it and it's also t- I mean look It's nice to step back and go, wow, I set my life course to try to end marijuana prohibition, and it's not done yet, but it's going to happen, and it's happening, right? I set my life course to try to pull back mass incarceration, and it is definitely moving in that direction, right? I set my life to try to be more humane and driven by science and dealing with addiction, and it is happening in that way. So I feel a tremendous amount of satisfaction out of that and pride. You know, in the last few years, I'd be standing up, you know, at some of these marijuana industry conferences. And I'd say, how many of you ever heard of me before I got here? And like maybe a third would raise their hand or whatever. And I would say, I look at them and say, you want to know something? I'm your fucking daddy and you don't even know it, you know? And I get a laugh line, but it was actually true. So there is this sense, and that's why I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah. There's also some sense 
of seeing all the people out there, you know, all pro-drug reform and legalized marijuana. You look at almost all the Democratic candidates except Biden. You look at all these others. And, and I remember being with them, and I know a lot of them, right? And I know a lot of them going back many years. And I remember how totally gutless they were on this issue. I remember how they struggled to do the right thing. I remember how often they did the wrong thing. You know, I mean, look at Joe Biden. He's trying to backtrack on a whole bunch of stuff now. But he was a terrible drug warrior. I, I look at, I mean, I admire Cory Booker because he's been out there for a long time pushing the right way. I admire Beto O'Rourke, who first cut his teeth on this issue and has been bold and for This is a Beto O'Rourke's a guy who wrote a book about why we need to legalize marijuana before he ran for Congress and right. still won in El Paso, right? right? And there's a bunch of the other candidates who are pretty good, but I look at a whole bunch of these others and I'm like, oh, come on, guys. You're trying to live down a past. I look at how long people just took the conventional view. And it's only, you know, the poli- you, know you said it before, it, the politicians it, trailed behind the public on it, this It stuff. used to be a disqualifier for elected office if you had smoked marijuana, right? That's right. Like, that was an issue people would struggle with to, to acknowledge whether or not... I mean, when I was growing up, I remember being around people who said, I don't want to smoke weed because I might run for office one day. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That was considered a disqualifier. And my, my response line of right? late has been, you know what marijuana is a gateway for? <laughs> the White House. <laughs> right? Between George Bush and Obama and Clinton. I mean, you know, maybe they didn't admit it. Maybe they said a friend had out them. But, you know, that's been the truth of it. That, except for the knucklehead in the White a, House that's now. That's a line so, you know. for the highlight reel. So exactly. when we edit this down for highlights, we're pulling that one. But okay. let me stay on this issue with you, Ethan, and give you a moment to take a drink, take yep. a breath. When you look at the landscape of political candidates, we've got 20 of them will be on stage in two weeks. Hopefully, uh, drug policy and reform will come up or some of these elements, uh, the, the criminal justice reform will come up. Who is better on these issues? Is there one that has been or a number of the, who is good? And if, if we are, if, if we're a listener, you know, not a partisan and you're looking, maybe you can address Trump and yeah. then also address the candidates. And is where do they stand? Who's good on these issues? Who's not? Yeah. I mean, as I was saying, I mean, I, I look at, I look at Cory Booker, who's been committed across a broad range of issues from marijuana reform to the health issue, criminal justice reform, been knowledgeable. I've known him since before he even ran for mayor of Newark and he's cared about this issue. I've seen him speak to this issue both before right-wing audiences and left-wing audiences. As I said about Beto O'Rourke, he, you know, he cut his teeth on this mm -hmm. issue. You know, um, you know, some of the newer guys are saying the right things. The Indiana mayor, uh, Buttigieg, yep. you know, I mean, Biden, as I said, has just been bad for a long time. Bernie Sanders, never quite comfortable, but I talked to him when he was running four years ago, three years ago. And, and, you know, he came around and ended up doing some good stuff, landing on the right side. Gillibrand, Gillibrand, she's been pretty good. I yep. admire her. She's got legislation to, to, and, uh, to uh, you create know, Kamala Harris. I, you know, I've known her since she was DA of San Francisco. She did some decent things on this issue back then, but she never provided major leadership on this thing. There's a funny video on YouTube of her and I on a panel at the NAACP uh, uh, Centennial Conference in 2007. And I get up there. I'm the only white guy in the room. And I say, you know, we got to legalize marijuana and the drug war. The head of the California NAACP, Alice Huffman, for the first time, comes out, says the same thing. Kamala just passes the mic. I mean, really? She, oh, yeah. I mean, she knew she wanted to run for a higher office, and this was not going to be opportune, and other issues. So I'm a little more joined. I mean, even though I respect her, like yeah. her. We will tweet that link, that. and we will we'll tweet from Angry Americans. But I think th these are important questions to, to examine, because I think they're a question of courage. 
a question of, of moral courage, a question of do you put your own political interests ahead of those of the country, right? Especially at this moment. Because there, there was a point, even you could argue a decade ago, where politicians knew what was right. And the question was, did they have the courage to come out and say it? So I think the, the, going in the way, way back machine on some of these issues yeah. is illustrative because you can see that moment. You see them calculate in their mind what their heart says versus what their brain is saying. Right. And, and this issue, maybe more than any other, Paul, listen, is, is I'm, almost, I'm, it's, like, it's like a truth-telling question, right? But I right? am empathic and sympathetic to the demands on politicians. Yeah. So for me, the issue was not, I recognize that part of being a politician is you don't just always speak your mind. Right. You have to tailor things, be sensitive, think about timing. But the question I do ask is to how much do they care enough to think strategically about how far they could go? Do they care enough to think about how they could frame the issue so they could do more of the right thing, the wrong thing? Were they willing to take a few risks on this issue like they might in other areas? Right. And that's what I wasn't seeing from a lot of these folks. So let's go to, let's go to Trump. Like recently he passed you know, pretty significant legislation. He's standing up there with Van Jones, right? Unlikely allies. But you know, where is Trump on these issues? And what happens if he's reelected in relation to these issues? Well, I was very worried when Trump appointed Jeff Sessions to head the Justice Department because, I mean, Jeff Sessions really was a drug war dinosaur and a reefer madness, you know, retrograde throwback. So right. I was very worried. I thought there was, I was worried there was going to be more of a crackdown on the marijuana stuff. That did not, in fact, happen. I think Trump doesn't really care about the drug issue. I mean, 25 years ago, he, he made a comment, we should just legalize everything, right? And he obviously is indifferent about the marijuana thing and fine with the medical marijuana thing. I I think for Trump, I mean, you know, Paul, it's interesting. So little in the way of bipartisan legislation got through Congress in the last two years, but two of the two biggest bills that got through with bipartisan support that the president signed, one was on sentencing reform, very bipartisan, right. and the other one was on dealing with the opioid epidemic, right? right? Both of those. So two, two issues, which had been the third rail of American politics, something we're all scared to deal with, actually were like two of the, like the, principal examples of bipartisan collaboration. Mm. So in that sense, I think we did see some movement. The fact that the opioid epidemic was hitting hard among Trump's base. If you look at those districts around America that have the worst opioid problems, especially among white people, and if you look at the districts which where people most flip from voting for Obama in, uh, in 8 and or 12 to Trump in 16, there's incredible overlap between the ones that switched from the Democrats to Trump and the ones that have a major opioid issue. Mm. So Trump knew he had to address this. When all those guys went up to New Hampshire back in, was it 2015? Mm -hmm. And you know, you go to New Hampshire, massive opioid overdose problem, addiction problem. They knew they couldn't, talking tough on drugs was just not gonna work anymore. So Trump, I think for Trump, the drug issue only matters in two frames, really. One is if he can link it to the whole thing about the borders and Mexicans and all that sort of stuff, right. then that. Or if he can somehow play on people's fears around crimes and black people, he'll do that. But apart from that, he doesn't care about the drug issue, and he knows he needed to do something on the opioid issue vis-a-vis -vis his base. So they've not been as bad as I feared. So... Thank you for that. And by the way, William Weld, who, you yeah. know, wants to make this valiant effort to give, uh, you know, Trump a challenge in the Republican Party. Right. He's been a leading. I mean, he's been very good on this issue. He's got a libertarian streak. He's been saying the right things long before it was politic. Maybe not when he was governor of Massachusetts, but he's been a good guy. 
for a long time. I'm glad time. you mentioned that because some of the candidates that are that are stronger on specific issues or focused on specific issues, Andrew Yang's talking about technology policy, right? They're going to be candidates who run that are almost one issue candidates because their, their entire strategy is to further that issue on the national stage. If they get a debate stage, they can do that. And it's, it's good to hear you even mention Weld's name because I think he gets forgotten so often. And for Republicans listening, they may not know they have an alternative, at least option. It's an unlikely option, of course. But to hear that from you, I think is important. I want well, look, to any Republican yeah. who is first and foremost anti-Democrat and can't live with the thought of a Democrat in the White House. And Trump's renomination appears inevitable, barring some major, you know, some right. bizarre happening. I think casting a protest vote for Weld is a way of retaining your Republican loyalty, but saying, because Wells is an incredibly thoughtful, intelligent guy, and he's tried to do the right thing consistently, you know? And, and, and I mean, I remember there was a point when I think Bush had nominated him to be ambassador to Mexico, and he mm -hmm. got brought down mm -hmm. by Jesse Helms because Weld had supported clean needles to reduce the spread of HIV AIDS among drug users. So he's been a principled man for a long time that I respect. I appreciate that. So I want to take a pause. We are uh, at the Classic Car Club. We are now in our uh, 12th episode. You are our, you are our dozenth guest, and, and that is uh, exciting for us. Uh, but every guest who has been on this show has answered a question that helps us understand where they came from and where they started. So the question for you, Ethan, is, Ethan, what was your first car? Well, I mean, you're not going to believe this, Paul, right? I mean, my first car was a Mandarin-colored VW convertible bug that Richard Nixon gave me in 1975. Tell us more. I'm bullshitting. <laughs> I had to say that with you because I saw your post about Zayn's story about the pistachio <laughs> car from Son of a Zayn. So I said, what the hell? How could I top that? I was like, wow, yeah. this is actually better than Zaynab's yeah. car that she yeah. got from Son of a Zayn. I know. I had to try to top her thing. Wow. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, that would be cool. Wow. Wouldn't it be nice if that were the, true? The, the crew, said, the crew filming going? this almost fell over. So did you. Uh, my <laughs> mouth is dropped. If you watch the video, go to our YouTube page, angryamericans.us. Yeah. You'll see that, 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 that reaction. Yeah. That would have been good. I know. Well, Zainab's story was so Zainab's good. Zainab's story is unbelievable. I know, I totally know, unexpected. I know, I know. If you're listening and you haven't gone back, listen to the episode with Zainab Salbi where she explains her very first car. She actually gave us a two-prong two answer. One was the car she bought for like 400 bucks when she first came to America. That was the first car she bought herself, yeah. which I think was a Chrysler. But then she got a mint green Mitsubishi personally gifted from Saddam Hussein. Yeah, right. Wow. Okay, right, you right. never cease so to surprise me. Truth, but what was your, what's the, the real answer? The truth was really, it was my dad's car. It was a Pontiac Catalina 400. It was the car I learned to drive on. I first got my driver's license on. It was the car in which I got three speeding tickets and landed up losing my driver's license at the age of 17. It was the car from which I got pulled out of the car by half a dozen cop cars and because I got caught, blah, 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 blah. It was the one where I broke the axle because I was pulling 360s to impress some girl and the Axel brakes. Yeah. So that was my first car. Wow. And what color was it? It was a light brown one or something like that. A light, and what year? Do you remember what year oh, it was? God, it must have been early. I mean, I got my license in 73, so it must have been about early 70s. Was there, for, for a long time, the most uh, dangerous place to probably have drugs was in a car, 
right? Maybe I'm wrong, but like I felt like that's where most people got nailed, or many people got uh, nailed. Paul, so I mean, one of my scariest moments. Please. I was 17, right? My family recently moved from Yonkers up to Scarsdale, with a fancy neighborhood, you know, north of the city. And I had a friend. I didn't do drugs at that time, but I had a friend visiting me from out of town who was a total pothead, and he always had pot on him, except fortunately that night. And I'm driving down the Maronick Road from like White Plains to Scarsdale, whatever, and just like you know, showing off. I'm driving 65 miles an hour down a 30 mile hour zone in this thing. I pass a couple of cars going the other direction, and and then like I'm done with that. I slow down and I look behind me in the rearview mirror, and I see this car racing behind me, and another car racing behind me. I don't know what's going on, so I speed up and like make a right to try to so that they won't see I cut off the road. Next thing I know, I'm surrounded by six police cars out of the car, hands against the roof, blah, blah, blah. It turned out the car I passed going in the direction was the chief of the Scarsdale Police Department. Who, you know, So they pulled me down to the station, gave me tickets for speeding and failure to comply and cross the yellow line and call my parents. I thought, I'm, no, I they didn't call my parents. I kept that a secret for a while. But then ultimately I got a third <laughs> ticket and I lost my driver's license and I spent the second half of my senior year with no driver's license because I liked driving too quickly and I got unlucky too often. That's not a bad answer either. Okay. All right. There you go. All right. So <laughs> as we digest that and as we digest this conversation, and I do want to make sure we get to opioids. Okay. I want to come yep. back to that yep. because I, I will be doing a disservice to our audience if I don't give you a chance to uh, inform us on that. Right. I, I, I talk in every episode about how I want to bring integrity, information, and, and information from you, I think already has been really, really uh, inspiring. And then impact and inspiration. And I think your story is an inspiration, but I also ask every guest what makes them angry so ethan what makes you angry i i I think paul it really comes down to the combination of stupidity cruelty and prejudice and the reason i committed my life to ending the drug war you know i mean you know the late the late 20th century america was a period of relative enlightenment and it was like the we needed a boogeyman in our society and the junkie, the drug trafficker, the the whole thing became where our dark side manifested. It was where our our ignorance, it was where our stupidity, our prejudice, everything and cruelty just manifested in the most ugly way. We didn't have a real war going on. We needed some war and let's have a war on drugs. And it wasn't really a war on plants and chemicals. It was a war on human beings. Mm. And so it's that combination of stupidity and cruelty and bigotry that really just, just, drives me and makes me, you know, furious and, and want to fight for change. And, I, you know, for 30 years and, and even today, you know, if you scratch me, I just get animated and I hate the drug war and the things that are, resemble it because it, it just personifies that. I mean, the thing about the drug thing, it's like I, I, somebody who rapes, kills, murders, even steals, they deserve to be punished. And that can include prison time, maybe even long prison time. Somebody who puts a drug in their own body and doesn't hurt anybody else, doesn't get behind the wheel of a car, why are we taking away their freedom? Why are we taking away their kids or their job or anything like that? And even somebody, an adult, who sells drugs to another adult, what do we care? What difference does that make? Why is that person any different than somebody selling booze to another adult or cigarettes or, or guns or or or, or motorcycles or whatever, right? So the notion that people deserve to be punished and hurt because they did something we don't like, I mean, that, that's where the whole war on drugs is like the persecution of, of homosexuals or the persecution of people based upon religious views or things like that. And that, that kind of thing just... 
That's why I was excited to ask you that question. <laughs> because in many ways, it, it epitomizes what this show is about because that anger is real. It's justified. It's important. We have to recognize it and hear it. But at the same time, it's fueled your work. Right, that sense of moral outrage, that sense of righteous indignation, a need for change, right? That's what's fueled your work. And I think we have to continue to pay attention. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Yeah. And this is where attention should have been paid right. for a long time and is now finally being paid. And and to that point, opioids. Okay. Well, Paul, it's, before it's, you let please, me just say ahead. this thing. The thing about the, the anger is to understand that the anger is a driving force, but it was important for me to be judicious about where I manifested that anger. Because Smart. so much of success in politics or in advocacy is about reassuring people. It's about not putting your anger in people's face. It's about holding people's hands to become comfortable. I look at how the gay rights movement succeeded. It wasn't just about gay people, you know, expressing with profound anger their, their anger at being victimized and stigmatized and discriminated against. And it wasn't about their putting their, their gay love, you know, right in everybody's face. It was about being judicious and thoughtful about how to get the middle American who wasn't fully comfortable with it, but for they, where they could find a way to be comfortable and accept that gay people should be treated absolutely no differently than straight people. And to some extent, our struggle on the drug thing has really been about, you know, nobody deserves to be discriminated against or punished based simply upon the substance we choose to put in our body. Right. It's a core principle. Right. And, and so now we're dealing with the opioid issue here. Yeah, please, like, let's, let's pause there for a second, because I think you, you are talking to what is important for me about many of the issues we cover, which is about freedom. And about the very essence of what it means to be American. And to be American means to be free. And that has to extend to drug policy. It has to extend to mental health. It has to extend to sexuality. It has to extend all the way through. And that's why I hope this show can be a conversation about reclaiming patriotism. And I think this entire drug policy reform movement is in part about that, about reclaiming a huge part of our country, our time, our resources, our people that have been lost. Uh, to that point, opioids. I don't know yeah. if there's anybody that I know that can break this down. So I want to be specific. Explain how bad it is and explain what you think the president and the country should do about it. Yeah, well, first of all, the opioid epidemic we're having in, in recent years in America, it is not, it is primarily an American problem. You don't see this thing manifesting in most of the rest of the world. It's not happening in Europe. It's having a little bit in British Columbia, some parts of Canada, a couple corners of Europe, but it is a very American thing. The second thing is- Why, why is it in America? What are the conditions that make it unique well, here? Yeah, I'm, I'll get to that Please. in a sense. I mean, part of it, this issue really began to explode in the early part of this century, and it was driven by the pharmaceutical makers, you know, the Purdue Pharma's, and not just them. I mean, they've gotten all the blame. They deserve a lot of blame, but right. it's kind of Purdue Pharma is to painkillers the way like Kleenex is to tissue or Xerox is to copy <laughs> machine, right? But what they did was they invented a drug, OxyContin, that was a lifesaver for people dealing with really serious acute pain, and then they over-promoted it and oversold it for chronic pain. And by and large, opioids are not the best way to deal for, with chronic pain for most people. For some, it works. But for most, you relying on opioids daily, weekly, monthly, annually, on and on and on, is not the best way to deal with chronic pain, right? So that's what started off the thing in some significant way of people getting this. Then, as they began to pull back under pressure, 
heroin was coming in from Mexico. Heroin's been coming from Mexico for almost 100 years, right? It's come from other places too. But people began to switch and turn to heroin because it turned out it was becoming cheaper than pharmaceutical opioids. And then the scariest thing that happened was fentanyl. Fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, it's used in hospitals when you're coming out of surgery and things like that. My daughter had surgery, she had fentanyl for a couple of days, right? It's a very responsible, powerful thing. It is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine or heroin per, you know, per gram, per microgram or whatever. But some of this started coming in from China, either via Canada, Mexico, whatever. The thing about, what you have to know with most opioids, including heroin, is that it's very unlikely that somebody's going to die of an overdose if all they use is heroin. Most overdoses are really not about just taking too much heroin. They're actually fatal toxic drug combinations. It's when you combine opioids with booze or with benzos, you know, the Valium-type drugs. Fentanyl, different. It's so powerful that it all by itself can cause people to stop breathing and die. So if you look at the stats, pharmaceutical opioids accounted for the biggest part of overdose fatalities from 2000 to 2007. Heroin for the biggest part from 2007 to 2014. Now fentanyl has got the biggest part. So here's the thing. Now, why is it happening? I mean, by and large, we live in a pill-popping culture where people want instant gratification. We live in a culture where doctors don't have the time to deal with patients and aren't really well-trained in dealing with pain, nor are nurses. We have a situation where insurance companies find it easier to pay for pills and to pay for, you know, the things that really might make a difference, like physical therapy or psychological counseling or things like that. We have, you know, pharmaceutical companies and distributors that can make a lot of money doing this sort of stuff. We have, you know, millions of Americans, you know, not just black and brown, but white, who feel kind of hopeless about their future, who see that the chances that they're going to be able to provide for their kids the way their parents provided for them, or, or are losing a, sense of, losing a sense of hope about this. And, you know, opioids is a thing that helps take away people's pain. It's efficient at distancing people from physical pain, but can only, it can also dull emotional pain, and sometimes in the way that alcohol does as well. And so you just have this kind of multidimensional problem right now. And then on the flip side, you have people who won't do the things we know works. Like, for example, everybody loves 12, not everybody, most people love 12-step programs, right? Right, right? AA, NA, all right, this sort right, of stuff. Right, right. And God bless them, millions of people have embraced recovery and succeeded through that. But its success rate is remarkably low. The vast majority of people go to AA, NA, do not recover, do not get better. They fall off the wagon, get back up. You know? And the problem is when you fall off the wagon, you have a risk. It used to be a risk of getting AIDS. Now it's a risk of dying of an overdose, right? People look down their nose at methadone or buprenorphine. But the bottom line is, if you've tried to quit opioids a few times and you can't do it, then you should get on methadone or buprenorphine tomorrow, right? And if it turns out it's your, that you're on it not just for a year or two, but for a lifetime— That's okay. In the same way it's okay for a diabetic to be on insulin for a lifetime. I know people have been on methanol for 30 years. They have a business, a family, they drive a kid, they have sex, da-da-da-da-da. And this is their daily medication, and they're not an addict. They just take their daily medication. You know, I'll tell you something else. Please. You know, there's a wonderful new documentary out called From Shock to Awe. Okay. About veterans dealing with PTSD. Yeah, you sent me some more information about this. Yeah, veterans dealing with PTSD, but also people dealing with opioid issues. Ayahuasca, which is like the 
Amazonian version of peyote, but also mushrooms and sometimes MDMA, which is another type of therapeutic drug where there's research. These Commonly things, known as ecstasy. What's that? No, Co commonly known as ecstasy right. or molly, yeah. Right, right. That these things are showing incredible results, not just anecdotally, but now even in controlled studies. So in terms of dealing with addiction or PTSD or PTSD, which can be associated with addiction, right. I mean, these things have kind of, it's not something you're going to go off and do by yourself, right? You typically want to do it with somebody who knows what they're doing, who's helped people before. Yeah. But this, this documentary from shock to awe shows a number of veterans who have been struggling with PTSD, sometimes with addiction, going through these powerful experiences, either with ecstasy, known MDMA, yep, yep. or with ayahuasca, and really coming into a place of recovery and, and this. So there's all sorts of... The other thing is... Let me stop you there. Because so, yeah. that, that, that's where, um, you know, another time when our worlds intersected, because my work in the veterans community put us in a place where our organization, I believe, was the first to call for... Um, you know, changes to the categorization of marijuana to call for uh, medicinal marijuana access for veterans for the VA to test and we hope uh, recognize the medicinal value of of marijuana which is still a problem right now right the federal government and the VA do not yet support and recognize medical marijuana as an option for veterans which is a problem and I'll oh. post a link to legislation that people can, I mean, Paul, can access some but states it, half it, of all the medical marijuana patients in a state like New Mexico a few right, years ago right. were vets right and and what we've seen is the, here here's the ultimate going back to the issue of freedom and government control you've got a 19 year old 25 year old 30 year old veteran who controlled millions of dollars worth of weapon systems you know was responsible for life and death every day loses a leg and comes home and can't have access to medicinal marijuana I think that is the apex of how broken the policy is, yeah. right? We're not the only ones, but if a veteran who's given life and limb for this country, who is experiencing pain, who might find some relief, whether it's for pain or from PTSD, can have a better quality of life, can move forward, can deal with pain relief, who is the government to stop us, it's right? And, and who are the politicians I mean, to stop us? And that's where I think- doctors working in VA yeah. hospitals who right. think this is ridiculous right. or who have to refer people outside the VA system or have to be, I mean- But it, I want to ask a, you a question specifically yeah. about how bad is the opioid issue relative to, let's say, crack or AIDS? Like, do we have a, 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 well, a, a modern way, historical parallel to how many people, people were losing? dying of an opioid-related overdose in the last year or two exceeds the number of people dying of AIDS at the height of the AIDS crisis. It exceeds the number of people dying of, 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 auto, of, of alcohol related auto accidents at the height of that crisis. In fact, I think the number is greater than the combination of all alcohol related fatalities. And, you know, it's higher than the number of people dying of gun fatalities, both suicide and homicide, right? So we're talking about an epidemic that is of monstrous proportions. The amount of money being devoted to it is still do you pathetic. have to look back to plagues to try to find, you know, it's, like it's modern not, historical I mean, it's not, parallels? It's not at the level of the plague or what happened with influenza after right. World War One, stuff like that. But it is, if you think about the height of either alcohol-related auto fatalities, the height of AIDS, or the height of gun violence, it exceeds any one of those three by a significant mm, margin. Mm. So that's big, mm, right? Mm. And it goes, by the way, cuts across, it's black, brown, and white, right? right? So it's also... Poor, middle class, and affluent. Right. There's an apartment building around the corner from me up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, one of the most expensive apartments in New York City, maybe 70 apartments costing, I don't know, 10 million bucks a piece. Yeah. I know of at least four families that have lost a son to an overdose in that building. 
right? And these are probably kids who had very dynamic, wealthy fathers, and the kids couldn't follow yeah, in the father's yeah, footsteps, yeah, and yeah. they ended up dying yeah. of, you know, so I think, it's a pervasive I think, problem. I think the power of, of this show and our audience is also that we've got folks who live in those apartments, but are also, you know, living in rural areas or living in trailer parks or living in housing projects. They're really representing, you know, the deepest urban and the most remote rural. And, you know, they see this show and the issues we cover as things that can bring people together. And I think drug reform and policy reform is one of them and i wonder is is the language in part out of date like when we say drugs should we call it drugs and when you say you earlier said i i do i do drugs right should we change the way we speak of these things yeah i mean drugs such a you google on drug and what pops up marijuana prozac you know, diabetes drug. I mean, so drugs are kind of crazy term to refer to all these yeah. things. The people who talk about things like uh, mushrooms and ayahuasca and peyote and, and that sort of stuff, they don't even want to call it, or even marijuana. They say, we're not talking about drugs. These are plants or plant medicines. So it is a backward term. I think, look, addiction's a weird thing. I mean, if you're living and you have somebody in your family who's an addict, a lot depends upon what kind of addict they are. If they're one of these people who kind of drinks too much or is addicted to opioids, but they're not violent, they're not hurting people, you learn how to deal with it. If you're in a family with somebody who's addicted and they're stealing, they're hurting, they're getting violent, it's very hard. So on one level, I, I say that you know the, st- the stigmatization and disparaging of people who are addicted is counterproductive. Right. I mean, it's one thing to be upset about their behavior. And to say, it's not okay to beat your wife or your kid or whatever. It's not okay to do that stuff. Um, But I will say this. The notion, if you're a parent and you got two kids, well, you got two kids who are addicted. And one's an alcoholic and one's an opioid addict. The fact, you have to talk to a doctor. And the doctor's going to say, that alcohol is probably doing more harm to your kid than the opioids are doing to your other kid. Right? But under the law, that alcoholic kid... He doesn't go to prison unless he beats somebody up or gets behind the wheel of a car and gets caught, right? That opioid addict, all he has to do is be sitting at home taking that drug illegally, and he's a criminal and go to prison, right? right? right. That makes no sense. It's where the criminal law and the science are totally out of whack. So what I'd like people in your audience to know, you know, if it's them or somebody you, you, know, you love, you care Please. about, who's struggling with this thing, if you got a problem and you're hooked on these opioids, right, Figure out a way to get into a... Try the 12 steps. It'll work for you. If it doesn't, find what's called a harm reduction program with people who can help you pull back on what you're doing. Don't be shy about methadone and buprenorphine. When people say it's just substituting one drug for another, just tell them to shut up and understand that's like telling a diabetic that giving him insulin is just substituting one drug for another. Or or like telling somebody who wants to switch from cigarettes to an e-cig. I mean, you switch from cigarettes to an e-cig, you're reducing the risk of cancer and heart disease by 90, 95%, right? So, you know, understand that there are safer, more dangerous versions of these drugs. Understand that when it comes to dealing with pain, both physical pain and emotional pain, you don't always need drugs to do that. And obviously, there's a spiritual piece to this, whether it's traditional religion or otherwise. There are other ways to deal with this stuff. If, if you know somebody's dealing with this stuff, and if you can get them to switch from opioids to weed, 
you know, nobody's killing themselves with weed. Nobody's ever overdosed. So it's now weed. backward, right? Weed used to be viewed as a, as a gateway drug into bad stuff, and now it's flipped, and weed could actually be the gateway drug out of bad stuff. Well, it can be. I mean, look, <laughs> you know, you never know, but I mean, basically, marijuana is so much. It's, there was a DEA judge thirty years ago, Francis Young, who held years of hearings, and he concluded by saying that marijuana may be the least dangerous psychoactive substance commonly used in human history, and he worked for the DEA. Right. So wow. the fact is, marijuana. Nobody's ever died of marijuana overdose. Marijuana can be a problem drug. You don't want kids waking and baking. You don't want people, sure. you know, drinking and smoking and then driving. I mean, it, you know, there are people where it can be a link to mental illness. But by and large, marijuana is less dangerous than cigarettes, alcohol, opioids, cocaine, almost a lot of pharmaceuticals. So you know, and if you have an opportunity, yes, to find a place where you can go through an experience with MDMA or ayahuasca or mushrooms with some kind of, it's hard to find them, but they're beginning to pop up around the country, give that a try because there's a reason why the guy who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Smith, it, at the height of his success, started to do psychedelics and mushrooms and began to believe that that was the key for addicts developing the spiritual insight they could get them beyond their addiction. Powerful, powerful. So you've given us a lot to think about. I'm going to want you to come on this show at least once a year, if not more often, to kind of break it down. But you, you, you led us to a point of inspiration. And, and the last question I'll ask you, Ethan, that I ask everyone is, what, what makes you happy? What's a thing or, or an experience or something? What makes you happy, Ethan? Love. <laughs> I mean, it, it comes right down to it. Being in love, being in love with, 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 with my family, with a friend, with my daughter, with my woman. I mean, those are the things that just light me up. And, and I'm never going to get away from that. I don't understand people can, I don't understand how people can live without love. That's really the thing I least understand. I think that is a beautiful and important message. And you are one of my favorite people in the world to talk to. You are also a super cool fucking dude. Like you could write, you could write. You does, should speak. You could write. You are like does, the coolest dude no, I know. No. And Paul, what you've done with IVA, what you're doing now in these next phases, I am blowing away. I, mean, I, 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 I am proud to call that, you an ally and a fellow activist and fighter for the good, the good values in life. Because uh, I think that's what we're trying that to do. That means the world to me coming from you as, as kind of a Jedi master. But as is also tradition in the show, I have gifts for you. Oh. So we will, we will unpack the gifts. And if you want to see what this looks like, Go to our YouTube page. Go to angryamericans.us. You can always see the video. But I present to you first these two gifts, Ethan. You want me to open and it right yes, here? Yes, please. Open it. And we are for audio. So uh, folks who are new to listening. Oh, wow. Peeps. Marshmallow so, chicks. Now, there's, this is not CBD peeps. This is, no, not, no, this is straight no, up no. peeps. Wow. And, and But the question is, you have three colors of peeps. Three and I've been asking all guests so far this season i've been asking them uh if you could choose if you had to choose one of these colors we've got yellow blue and pink which color would you choose and why two man you know that's a really hard one because they all look a little scary paul they none of them look <laughs> so the, real the, 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 the godfather of you drugs know, is scared by peeps know, well you know i like to look at my drugs and smell them before i try them and uh <laughs> You know, but but blue is a kind of lucky color, so I'll go with the blue, not just because I'm a guy, but 
you know, and you know, and it kind of, you know, I drink the Gatorade. Some reason I picked the blue. I don't know why. Blue Gatorade's good. You know, so blue you know, I'll is go good. for the blue peeps. All right, all right. <laughs> Ethan yeah. Inman has spoken on the peeps, and then in there we've also got some angry American uh, merchandise oh, for you. Okay, uh, that is American made in the USA, Fantastic. made by veterans at Oscar Mike. So you can rock that when Fantastic. you are when you are uh, further examining your peeps. Yeah, or when you're on one of these many. <laughs> You go to some of the most interesting fucking conferences of anybody I know, man. Yeah. And, well, I was and, telling you that Ayahuasca Congress in Girona, Spain two weeks ago. So let, okay. We're, this, is, <laughs> this is one of our longer interviews, but I think it's worth it. We, I, I cannot let you off the hook. Tell me about the Ayahuasca Conference in Spain. I mean, as I said, Ayahuasca is like the peyote of the Amazon, right? And there are now so Ayahuasca- folks don't know, this is, you kind of have this vision of people being in a tent- like, but this I, is basically something, it's a very powerful, um, if you take in a big dose, a very right. powerful psychedelic. It, unlike mushrooms, LSD, and other things where people would sometimes just take it for yucks and this, almost nobody takes ayahuasca outside of some type of ceremonial setting. Might be a religious one. There's some Catholic-type churches in Brazil and the U.S. that use it as a sacrament. There are others that are, you know, you have traditional shamans in South America. You have people all around Europe, Latin America. I mean, even in Japan, for that matter, right now, you have right. people doing this stuff. But by and large, it's something that people have found remarkably valuable in terms of their spiritual awakening, in terms of kind of getting to grips with things that are happening in their life, in terms of personal growth. It's not always an easy drug. I mean, people can find themselves kind of hanging on to the earth for dear life. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, there are some people, if you got mental illness, you know, you want to be a little careful with it because it is powerful. But the vast majority of people I know who have done it really swear by its transformative effect in their lives. I've just done it a few times myself and both with very positive experiences. And here were 1,400 people from almost 50 countries gathered in Girona, Spain, the third such Congress in the last five years, everything from traditional shamans from the Amazonia region to modern day shamans to scientists, ethnographers, to lay people, to journalists, to people just interested in this stuff. Um, it's really, I mean, it, you see this. Is everyone doing ayahuasca no, together? No, 1,400 I mean, people from all over the world. No, that I mean, would there was be... one group, like there was a thing, like a women's session where like 78 of the women went off to someplace an hour off site and uh -huh. they had a kind of, but it was a low dose session. So it was okay. kind of more bonding thing. I did not do it there and people were not, I mean, when you do it, you know, you need to take a day to do it and you need a day the next day to kind of reintegrate everything. We're going on the road. I want to take this show to that <laughs> conference next year. So maybe you can get us in oh, and we will, we will take people deep inside but that sounds, you have had an amazing life journey. The last gift I have for you, each week I pick a, a specific, please open it if you okay. would. I'll hold your mic. And it is, uh, every week I select a, a specific beverage for our guest. It's in our traditional New York uh, liquor store, most liquor stores, silver container. It's really difficult to open. But I try to pick a bottle that oh. that speaks to the guest each week. Oh, oh, this is great. Oh, Stranahan's whiskey. This is fantastic. Now, it's you an American whiskey. Now, I want you to know yeah. why I picked that whiskey. Yeah. Where is it from? I don't know my glasses, but it it's says Colorado. Colorado. Was Colorado the first state? Colorado and Washington were the first two states to legalize weed in 2012. And the truth is... The, the future of the marijuana industry that I would like to envision, although I'm sad to say it's not going to be, I would have loved for the microbrewery model to become the model for marijuana legalization in America. In the final analysis, there's no stopping big alcohol, tobacco, pharmaceutical, and consumer goods from taking it over. 
But in the same way that we now see the microbrewery share of both microbreweries, but also the distilleries, micro distilleries, playing a ever still small but ever growing role in American industry and job creation, I would like to see the marijuana industry move more and more in this direction. As it goes from illegal to legal, I hope we cannot become big marijuana. I hope we can become like the small batch, small brew, microbrewery model. That would be my vision. Outstanding. I think your vision is one that's a vision for the future. Um, Ethan, for folks who want to keep track of you, you know, what's the best way to, to track on your work or well, read you, your I mean, writing? You know, I don't have a website these days. I really am taking it easy. They can email me at ethan at natalman.net. I encourage people to go to the website of my organization that I, I founded and ran for many years, drugpolicy.org, leading drug policy reform organization in the country, in the world, major biennial conference coming up in St. Louis this fall. So if you want to get involved in drug policy reform, I mean, look, on the one hand, all politics is local. Think global, act local, all true. So get involved locally. But if you want to be engaged nationally in the big picture, Drug Policy Alliance is a key organization to be supportive of, help, do whatever you can. Awesome. And you are a true oracle. You are a patriot. You are the best of what Angry Americans is all about. You have done an immeasurable amount for this Paul, country. I like that Jedi warrior line, man. Dude, I, I it's, put that one it's on legit, <laughs> man. It really is. I mean it. And, and I hope over the next few years, the country will appreciate your leader, better appreciate your leadership and your vision. And every candidate for president should have you on speed dial. And I hope that we see you making many visits to the White House with uh, some peeps in your pocket and a smile on your face, but knowing that the work that you have done is changed history. Well, you really hope, have, hope, and will change the future. Hope. I feel that my kids are growing up in a better America thanks to your leadership. Well, and Paul, I know many listen, other folks feel the same way. And seeing what you do with IAVA, I am really looking forward to seeing what this next stage and how you are going to change America. Dude, lots of ayahuasca conferences, hey. man. Lots of ayahuasca conferences, microbrew marijuana, and, well, and, and lots of good conversations. More the conferences is the ayahuasca itself, Paul. <laughs> All right. That's it, man. Well, that would be a fascinating next episode. We may go inside the world of ayahuasca in the podcast. <laughs> Stay tuned for that, folks. But an incredible conversation with the great Ethan Edelman. If you're new here, let me break it down. Every episode, I want to share with you a way to turn your anger, your frustration into positive action. Something that shows this is more than a show. It's a real community, a community of concerned and connected people who don't just complain, whine, and tweet, a community of people that takes action, righteous action, that shows angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. I'll give you an action to make you feel good, and that will do some good and make a difference. So, speaking of feeling good, check out the organization that Ethan founded, the Drug Policy Alliance. They're at drugpolicy.org. You can find them everywhere on social media. The Drug Policy Alliance envisions a just society where the use and regulation of drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights, in which people are no longer punished for what they put into their own bodies, but only for crimes committed against others, and in which the fears, prejudices, and punitive prohibitions of today are no more. Their mission is to advance those policies and attitudes that best reduce the harms of both drug use and drug prohibition and promote the sovereignty of individuals over their minds and their bodies. That's the Drug Policy Alliance, drugpolicy.org. For me, it's about freedom. It's about strength. It's about health. And it's about getting things right. So check them out. And I got another piece of homework for you. Watch The Handmaid's Tale. Holy shit, it's good. 
If you're not tracking on this show or maybe someone told you about it and you were a doubter, please check it out. I mean, I like dystopian, sci-fi, futuristic stuff in general, but this is much bigger than that. This is about politics, this is about ethics, and it's strikingly relevant for our times. I'm only three episodes into the new season, and it's awesome. So definitely check out The Handmaid's Tale. After you watch it, you'll understand why. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. All right, it's been another power-packed episode, and thank you to a few folks that made this episode happen. First off, Ethan Adelman, our amazing guest. I'm honored to have him as a friend. He's a genius, and, and now you understand why I was so excited about having him on the podcast, and I hope he'll join us again soon. Eric Seanborn, who continues to do so many design and creative elements around this show. Chris Rosenthal, who continues to make killer videos for us on Instagram and Twitter. Check Angry Americans out there, and also... Check us out on YouTube. All the videos are up there from this show and from the whole season. Ben Dawson and Andrea Peterson for shooting the video this week with Ethan Nadelman. Bill Schultz, again, producing this episode, working his magic and doing great stuff. Starfish Media for the studio and the recording help. Manuel Quajar, Patrick Conway, Soledad O'Brien. Oscar Mike, as always, our awesome merch partners for supporting this episode. And you want to support America? Skip Trump's 4th of July parade and buy some American-made merch from Oscar Mike. Cadence 13, thank you to you for the air support. Thank you to Righteous Media, again, for powering this whole enterprise. We got more shows coming soon. Get excited. And if your company's interested in sponsoring us at the ground level, give me a holler. And a new thing we started last week, thank a listener. Every week, I'll thank a few angry Americans for listening. First off, Terrence Wilson 1 on Twitter. Westside Kid from Chicago, Cubs fan says remember to like sports and politics do not love it fanatics go too far I don't know what that means but Terrence Wilson thank you for tuning in big shout out and I know you were listening to me on Sirius as well so thanks for that next up big thanks to Anthony Sirio he's on Twitter at BM2SW Navy combat veteran uh, director of foreign language exchange operations wind therapy seeker and warrior for the people from Arcadia California Big shout out to you, Anthony. Thanks for listening. And my favorite angry American this week, Val C. Her Twitter handle is WineGalUnboxed. My favorite Twitter handle of the week. Retired Air Force, a WSET diploma, certified wine educator, producer and host of Glass and Session Winecast. Uh, She loves humor, snark, podcast, and whiskey, and lives in Colorado. And this was her tweet. Holy shit! This podcast, exclamation mark, admits serious audio envy. The content quality is binge-worthy. Inspiring for those of us with, oh, what's the word? Rage. And it's extremely well-produced. I also love whiskey gifts. Thank you. No, Val. Thank you. We appreciate you tuning in. Rob Sarah, my guest from last week and in episode two. Big thanks to him. Keep tracking him. And he's been keeping up the fight for 9-11 first responders. He's been everywhere. Same with John Stewart. And check this out. Rob Sarah has been getting hate mail, which is crazy, but means he's making an impact. So send him some love. Rob, we appreciate you. Thanks for keeping up the fight. And of course, my family, my amazing wife and two boys. My father's day was pretty amazing. It was simple. We went fishing. My big guy caught his very first fish. 
and my wife also caught her first fish with the baby strapped to the front of her. So it was technically the baby's first fish too, but my wife is badass and fishing is awesome and I love you guys. And most of all, my final thanks as always is to you for tuning in. If you dig this show, please tell your friends to check it out. The Angry Americans movement is growing and that's because you're sharing it. If you're on an Apple device and you like the show, please leave a quick review. And if you have SiriusXM, check me out next Friday, June 28th, 12 to 2 p.m. and replaying at 7 to 9 p.m. I'm going to be filling in again for my friend Chris Cuomo and again on July 1st. So check us out on SiriusXM channel 124 if you subscribe. If not, look for the clips on angryamericans.us and all over our social media. I'll have a recap of the first two nights of the Democratic debates, which are actually coming up on June 26th and 27th. And we'll have a preview of Trump's crazy-ass 4th of July parade. There's a lot going on in America. We're going to stay on top of it here in Angry Americans. And we're grateful for you tuning in. And remember, it's okay to be angry. And know you're not alone. We're all a little angry. And that's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. America.